This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and each week we have the opportunity to address a different energy-based topic. This week we're going to be talking about my column that's published on RedState.com, and that column is titled, It's Time for Tough Love on Tax Credits for the Mature Wind Industry. And as we are facing the lame duck session of Congress going on in Washington, D.C., as we speak, the production tax credit for wind energy is one of the topics being discussed. And so uh, in, to encourage voters to contact their congressional representatives, both the senators and your congressman or woman, I, encu- I wrote this column to give people kind of the facts and some of the history behind the wind energy PTC. And to start our show today, I've invited Tom Stacy to join us. And Tom is from Ohio, and he focuses on wind energy issues. And I'm going to ask Tom to give us a little bit of his background and how we got into this topic first. But Tom's going to present for us in our first session today, he's going to present kind of an overview of what's happening with the wind industry and particularly some very interesting new shenanigans, I'll call them for lack of a better word, that are going on right now to try to protect the wind industry, and to extend the production tax credit, also known as the Wind PTC. So, Tom, thank you for joining me today. Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. Thanks, Maria. I'm glad to have you with us. And you focus far more than I do on wind issues. As I speak and write and do radio interviews all over the country, I address a variety of energy-themed topics, but you really uh, look at wind energy far more specifically than I do. Where did your interest in wind energy come from? Well, I happen to live in one of the highest elevation uh, areas of Ohio, uh, where uh, ostensibly the wind blows the hardest. So uh, back in 2007, the wind industry was busy behind the scenes working with uh, local farm owners and with our state government to try to forge a, uh, a path to erect 400 to 500-foot-tall uh, industrial structures uh, across this area. And uh, so I was interested at first and thought, well, it's too bad to have an industry in the sky in such a pretty hilly area of the state that's otherwise quite flat and boring. Um, but if that's what it takes you know, to, to get us off this foreign oil and and uh, reduce our dependence on on uh, dirty sources of electricity, I guess I'll just have to be patriotic and suck it up. But being curious, I started doing research and found major flaws in all of the arguments the wind industry was using to promote itself to governments. That made me mad. So I decided to spend some time and eventually... It became a vocation for me to understand and then help the public and lawmakers understand uh, the difference between what the wind industry is saying and reality. So you started out really as as somewhat of a supporter. 
I guess you could say that. You know, I would call the NIMBY as soon as I opened my mouth and started uh, garnering local opposition to a project here. And, you know, that angered me, too. I thought, well, this isn't my problem. This isn't my neighbor's problem. This is our country's problem. And if it's not going to be here, it's going to be a problem for somebody else. And I don't like the connotation that I'm selfish. I'm not. So I worked at this uh, at this avocation, which became a vocation, um, you know, on my own dime for several years. Uh, in part to prove to myself that the people calling me selfish and just trying to protect my own uh, my own views from my property, just to, to prove they were wrong. So you you and I met, if I recall correctly, I believe, at the International Conference on Climate Change back in probably 07 or 08. And you and I have been involved in these energy kind of issues for about the same time. I've been doing this since uh, January of 07. I remember hearing you stand up and and make comments and suggestions. And uh, I remember thinking how passionate you were when I I saw you from across the the conference (laughs) floor. And I thought, well, at the next break, I'm going to go introduce myself to her. So I could tell you were you were working your way into this with the same kind of passion and interest that I was. So it seemed natural. Um, yeah, and our so, paths have crossed many times since then, so I'm pleased to have you with me today. So, Ted, so what you said in your introductory comments, you talked about the difference between reality and what the wind industry is putting out there. Can you give us a few of the highlights of that? Well, sure. I mean, wind industry sounds good to to anybody off the street, right? I mean, it sounds good on the surface, you know, compared to what we use to make electricity today. I mean, apparently nothing gets mined. No fuels are incinerated, (laughs) so there aren't any air emissions, you know, directly from wind. And there's no hazardous or harmful waste product in the traditional sense. It also... It doesn't cause riverbeds to erode or fish to be denied access to their spawning grounds the way hydropower does. So I can see why people get excited about wind energy as a savior to the environment. You know, it just sounds good on the surface. And if wind energy were an affordable replacement, not just for some of the energy now and then, but for the important attributes of conventional fuels and generators that make them such dominant market shareholders today, and even technically savvy, unaffiliated fiscal conservatives might get behind the idea of deploying wind. It's hard to imagine wind energy could be bad for our economy and our future, but the numbers prove that it is. So, so yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I want to touch on three important and verifiable facts as an overview. First, wind energy costs roughly three times what it saves in the economy. Second, it industrializes the sky, which is different than industry on the ground, and in a very dominating way that's more imposing than any other industry. Wind machinery towers over more than a 1,000 times the land and sky of conventional generating sources per unit of energy returned. That's a big number, a 1,000 times more land impact. Finally, unprecedented amounts of our tax dollars are supporting an endeavor that ultimately makes America less competitive and less Americans employed because wind drives electricity rates and dependability lower long term. 
That hurts industry and the jobs it creates, as well as hurting people on fixed incomes. It's just downright masochistic to use our own hard-earned money, paid in taxes, to make America weaker. Unfortunately, it takes years to feel those effects, and by then, the damage is done. So we're into, what, 22 years now of uh, the wind production tax credit. Was there any wind energy industry prior to the production tax credit? There was. Uh, There was a burgeoning industry that began basically in Denmark and was picked up by uh, a utility in California um, that I think you'll hear about a little later in your show here. Yeah. Um, And that utility is famous for tricking people within its industry and tricking the public. So those were the seeds of the wind industry in the United States. Yeah, we can tease that we're talking about Enron. We don't have to hold that for the next segment, but it gives me a tease because in the next segment we're going to have Robert Bradley with us who worked for Enron at the time and uh, wrote the speeches for Ken Lay, the CEO of Enron, and so he is very well versed in Enron's role in the wind energy industry. So we're going to talk about that in our next segment. So we'll move on now past Enron, Tom. Yes, that's fine. So, um, you know, it's pretty clear that the industry has been a predatory industry, funded by our tax dollars, and then going after every area of law that it possibly can to make the law get out of the way for its behavior. Well, you know, we're, we're going to run out of time quickly here, and you're talking about the law. Um, why don't you tell us what, what ju- just is happening in Michigan specifically uh, with a law to make wind energy, I guess, more safer for investors or more attractive? Right, right. In the name of uh, some supposedly assumed benefits of continuing to build wind electricity in Michigan, a developer there who has a former business partner who is a member of the General Assembly asked, asked his, his crony friend in government to introduce a bill that would make it illegal for anyone living near a wind in, a, a proposed or existing wind project to sue uh, the wind developer essentially for anything. So implicit in in that bill is the idea that people who bring lawsuits against the wind industry are either lying uh, about the effect or they don't have any uh, personal property rights. Now, from what I understand, this bill, they're having trouble getting this through the Senate in Michigan. Is that correct? I'm not familiar with the particulars of, uh, of the process in Michigan since I live in Ohio. I have a yes. counterpart up there that keeps uh, me informed. But uh, the basic takeaway is that this is yet another area that proves the wind industry um, is willing to step on anyone to get what they want. Yeah. So tell us, we've got about another minute left. Tell us quickly, what's, what, what are we looking at in the lame duck session this week? Is it looking like, I mean, I, I heard that President Obama may veto a tax extender package. So is that good news for the production tax credit? Good news for our view of it, I guess I should say, actually. Good news for that it might be killed? Sure, sure. Well, here's the thing. The best thing that could happen is the tax extenders package would be passed without the WIN PTC reinstatement in it. That would leave the PTC stranded 
with an, without another bill, you know, that, that would have bargaining power for this special interest or that special interest being in or out of the bill. They call that sausage making, I believe. Yeah. Um, it would leave the win PTC stranded without another vehicle to be passed in the next Congress. That would be best. Um, next best would be to have no tax extenders package passed at all. Uh, but that leaves open the possibility that when gets their extension sometime next year. Less likely than this year, by the way. So, you know, we can go on down the line. You said you believe that it would be less likely for it to pass next year. I think so. Um, I think that there are a lot of efforts to make sure that pe- people in Congress can't ignore the way the wind industry operates and the fact that it provides a very, very low value proposition um, in the industry. So are you, we've got like, you know, 20 seconds left. Uh, do, okay. do you encourage people to call Congress on this Absolutely. issue? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every call, every call to Congress at this point helps um, Americans and, uh, you know, let Congress know in November that they want things to change. And this bill represents uh, you know, an unwillingness to begin that change. Well, great. Tom Stacy, we're out of time. I appreciate you taking your time to be with us today on America's Voice for Energy. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today in our second segment, we are continuing to talk about wind energy and specifically the production tax credit that is before Congress right now in the lame duck session as they're looking to extend it. Most people don't realize that the production tax credit for wind energy already expired on December 31st, 2013, almost one year ago. And they're looking now to retroactively reinstate the production tax credit. And I think that should make the American voter furious that this has already expired, but now we're looking to retroactively reinstate it. But in this session, I want to focus a little bit on some of the background history of the wind energy and the production tax credit. And I'm honored to have as our guest in this segment, Institute for Energy Research, and most importantly to me, Robert Bradley is one of my key mentors. When I first got into this industry, more uh, eight years ago, I was handed a copy of his book called uh, Energy, the Master Resource, and I read that book from cover to cover. I highlighted, I marked it up, and it was a great education for me. Since then, I've heard Robert Bradley speak many times and am honored 
to uh, call him a friend and that I can count, call on Robert Bradley when I have questions and he responds to me. But, you know, uh, Robert, as much as I, long as I've known you now and as much communication as we've had and as contact as we've had, until I did the research for this week's column that you can find on redstate.com and many other websites all over the Internet, I was, and I knew you had, you came from Enron and that you had worked there. I didn't understand, I didn't realize, Rob, that you had written speeches for Ken Lay and that you were really involved in this whole uh, wind energy um, um, shenanigans. I don't know what else to call it, but... You know, I, and so that was a, that was fascinating to me as I read an uh, article in the Houston Chronicle where you were talking about that. And so I'm delighted to have you with us today. Uh, thanks for joining me on America's Voice for Energy. Oh, it's very good to be with you, Borita. So tell us about your involvement with Enron and the wind in the energy industry and the production tax credit and how Ken Lay saw that. I, I've been since I read this, I've done several interviews myself on the radio on this week's column. And I've talked about Enron, and but of course I don't understand it like you do. Uh, but it's surprising uh, to see why did Enron get involved in wind? Sure. Well, uh, in the old days, um, uh, back in 1995, I uh, got a promotion at Enron, and I became director of public policy analysis. And uh, in this position, I wrote speeches for Ken Lay, and I was. Uh, Enron's uh, free marketeer, libertarian, versus a number of others on the staff who uh, were uh, left Democrats uh, 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 aligned with the uh, left to center, the pro-status environmental groups. And um, uh, Enron had gotten in the solar business uh, in the, uh, about the mid-'90s, and they decided to get into the wind power business back in uh, 1997. And at the time, there were two major U.S. Uh, wind companies. Uh, one was called Kinetech, which was on the verge of bankruptcy, and the other was Zond Wind Systems, uh, uh, both these companies out in California where uh, a raft of uh, state uh, tax credits and subsidies had gotten the wind industry off the ground uh, back in the 80s. And um, uh, I became an immediate critic of uh, Enron's uh, renewable energy ventures because they were taxpayer-dependent, they were government-dependent, they weren't dependent on consumer demand, uh, which I think is... Uh, uh, a business model that is much preferable to um, uh, crony capitalism or political sure. capitalism. And so I was publishing uh, articles on the side under a different affiliation um, of the Institute for Energy Research uh, by uh, night and weekends, and during the day I was working for Enron. Well, this became a little bit of a problem, and I had to tone down my criticism, but I I got my. I can imagine it would become a problem. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, some of the the wind power people. There's a number of quotations that are actually up on the internet. Uh, if you go to politicalcapitalism.com and you uh, click on Rob Bradley at Enron on the homepage, you can read all these memos where they were saying, "Who is this guy Bradley? He ought to be fired," and uh, all this sort of thing. Uh, but. 
um, uh, what Enron did by buying Zon, uh, one of the two uh, wind companies, was they put a lot of capital in heft and good PR behind the U.S. wind industry. And several years later, uh, Enron was instrumental in getting the renewable quota passed uh, in Texas as part of the Texas uh, electric restructuring bill signed by George W. Bush that uh, gave renewables, and wind was the most competitive renewable compared to solar, uh, a large uh, uh, quota. And so Texas became the leading wind power growth state in the country, and it has surpassed California. So in so that, retrospect... So Texas became the big leader in wind uh, in the wind industry because of some uh, shenanigans behind the behind closed doors of Ken Lay. Is that correct? Uh, and George W. Bush uh, and uh, you know the environmental groups of Sierra Club of Texas and a fellow named uh, Smitty Smith uh, were instrumental in uh, in getting this passed. So. Enron saved the U.S. wind industry in two ways, uh, business-wise and legislatively, by uh, being so instrumental in getting the quota in the electric restructuring bill in Texas. So the history of wind power cannot be told uh, without uh, uh, Enron being very prominent. Now, just for our listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with Enron or have forgotten what happened with Enron. Can you give us just a sentence or two of kind of how, how do you describe what Enron did back then, or how, how would you remind people? Right. Enron? Well, Enron was uh, primarily an energy company, and it became everyone's favorite energy company uh, in the 80s and 90s. And uh, uh, Fortune, Forbes uh, were giving Enron all these accolades as one of America's leading and most innovative Companies and the stock price was going up, and Ken Lay was seen as the uh, industry visionary. And Ken Lay's model of political capitalism was based on, uh, you know, clean, green energy and uh, energy efficiency programs. Uh, so it was everyone's darling, particularly the environmental left. And uh, pretty suddenly, in uh, uh, 2001. The company's fortunes reversed, and it went bankrupt in December uh, 2001. And so the story at the time, and it's remained uh, uh, the mainstream view, is the incorrect one, and that is somehow Enron was a free market company. But uh, Enron was uh, uh, sounding the global warming alarm and had seven profit centers tied to uh, regulating pricing, taxing uh, carbon dioxide, CO2 emissions. And wind power and solar power were part of that. So uh, it was crony capitalism all the way, but unfortunately uh, capitalism and greed got the blame uh, for Enron. Now, why did Enron get interested in wind? Well, they were always looking to do something different, and they... The production tax credit was passed in 1992, uh, and so it was sitting there for Enron. Uh, so uh, uh, Enron knew they could get DOE subsidies, and they knew it would be good press uh, that uh, Enron was a green energy company. And Ken Lay used to work for Humble Oil and Refining, which 
became part, a major part of Exxon, with now Exxon Mobil, and Lay saw his energy model is different from uh, the dinosaur Exxon Mobil, the old integrated oil majors. Uh, you know, it was based on uh, wind, solar, natural gas, and the natural gas part uh, uh, was sound. Uh, and Enron also invested very heavily uh, in its last years in uh, energy efficiency, uh, where they would um, uh, have companies outsource their entire energy function to Enron under long-term contracts. And that turned out to be uh, very fraudulent. Uh, so Enron's green energy initiatives were not profitable and were a reason the company uh, uh, failed in the final analysis. Now, wasn't there a natural gas component specifically that Enron wanted um, wind energy because it would uh, strengthen their position in natural gas or something like that? Well, not not quite, Um but Enron was instrumental in getting uh, some of the gas trade associations, such as uh, the gas pipeline group, INGA, the Interstate Natural Gas Pipeline Association of America, uh, to be, at least be neutral uh, toward things like a carbon tax. Um, uh, so uh, Enron got the gas interest sort of in line with the left environmental interest, and they all declared war on coal. Uh, Ken Lay declared a war on coal in the early 90s that uh, people had forgotten about. Um, So um, uh, Enron took the industry in a new direction. And one other thing is a protege, uh, Ken Lay's protege at Enron named Jim Rogers, uh, who recently retired as CEO of Duke Energy, uh, he brought Ken Lay's political capitalism model to the electricity industry uh, with uh, some companies that through merger uh, became Duke Energy. So Jim Rogers was the first uh, major electric utility CEO to come out in favor of cap and trade. Yes, and, yes uh, I recall that. I, I recall being angry with him. So there's, you know, one crony capitalist spawning another crony capitalist. It's not a pretty story. (laughs) No, it's not. I remember when um, Aubrey McClendon, then CEO of Chesapeake Energy, when it was revealed that he had donated $50 million to the Sierra Club for the Beyond Coal campaign, I remember yelling at the television and saying, you fool, you're next. And it wasn't three months later that the Sierra Club came out with their beyond natural gas campaign. Right, right. It's a war against uh, not only coal, not only oil, but now it's a war against natural gas. So uh, the left has really staked out a radical position, and the good news is uh, we have folks like Marita Noon that are exposing uh, the uh, uh, anti-market environmental left uh, in their war on clean uh, or affordable uh, and clean um, uh, plentiful fossil fuels. Yeah. We've got in about 10 seconds, anything you want to make sure that our listeners take away from you you today? Yeah. uh, Government business uh, relations uh, are are trouble, and uh, uh, the voters, the listeners should reward those corporations that are uh, pro-free market 
and uh, oppose those that are uh, political cronies. Great, and that would be the wind industry, certainly. Thanks, Robert Bradley, for taking your time to be with us today. I appreciate it. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we're talking about the wind energy industry and specifically the production tax credit, which is being debated in Washington, D.C. this week as a part of Congress's lame duck session. Realize this production tax credit has already expired. It expired almost a year ago, December 31st, excuse me, December 31st, 2013. So it's already expired, but the wind industry, the wind energy industry is not happy about this, and they're still fighting to get it reinstated retroactively. And when I think about the wind energy industry, and specifically the damage that it does environmentally, specifically in bird kills, I think of my friend Paul Dreesen. Now, in our last segment, we had Robert Bradley from the Institute for Energy Research with us. And by the way, I failed to offer his website. But if you just do a search on Institute for Energy Research, you will find uh, his work and his organization. And uh, he's done a lot, a lot to further the cause of sound energy policy. But another one of my mentors, when I very first got involved in the energy uh, uh policy debate was Paul Dreesen, and Paul has been a wonderful friend and mentor to me as well. But, Paul, you've done a lot of work um, on the bird kill issue, and in fact, I believe you also, as I did, wrote a column this week about the production tax credit. So we have a lot of directions you and I can go on this topic. But first, let me welcome you, Paul Dreesen, to America's Voice for Energy today. Thanks for having me. So, you know, what, what do you see, what, what do our listeners need to understand on this, you know, bird issue? Because this is something that seldom gets addressed. And I know I've written on, uh, you know, the oil executives that were hauled into court and threatened with jail time over a few migratory birds 
that fell into an oil pit. But yet the wind energy, uh, the wind industry, they get a free pass on this. Is that correct? Well, they don't only get a free pass. They are assisted in hiding the actual slaughter level by the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service and other federal agencies. So we're subsidizing not just outrageously expensive, intermittent, unreliable energy, but we're subsidizing the slaughter of bald and golden eagles, peregrine falcons, whooping cranes, snow geese, all kinds of other birds, countless bat species, and other uh, wildlife because many of these wind turbines are being erected in fly roots for whooping cranes and other species right in the middle of habitats for for, for uh, birds and bats or right next to those habitats and the Fish and Wildlife Service has been saying that well it's 400,000 birds and bats a year that's not our birds per year that's not all that much and in reality from the estimates that I've seen coming out of Spain, Germany, uh, Sweden and other places where they've really done some careful studies we're looking at many millions of birds and bats being butchered by these wind turbines every year right here in the United States. Now, this is kind of, it may seem like an outrageous statement, but it's my understanding that, in reality, wind turbines are increasing the use of pesticides. Is that correct? Well, I don't know about that. Uh, it's possible, but it's sort of an indirect relationship. I know. I just think the, it's the, kind of an odd thing. I realize it's a little bit of a tangent for our discussion, but the yeah, but we don't need, Marita, we don't even have to get into that when we know that these <laughs> turbines are wiping out these birds as they fly near the turbine blades. The blades are moving at almost 200 miles per hour at the wingtips, and the birds simply don't see them. They think they're stationary or they don't see them at all. They're focused on their prey. They fly right into them. They get chopped in half. They get mortally wounded. Some of them crawl off uh, for hundreds of yards before they die. Uh, others are flung hundreds of yards uh, by the speeding uh, rotor blades, and yet the wind industry is allowed to search just a couple hundred feet away from the turbine blades, They know, from the turbine tower. They know these birds are mostly landing much farther than that away from there, and the Fish and Wildlife Service knows this, but they're allowed to search only in a very narrow corridor around the turbine towers, and then they're allowed to search only once every couple of weeks, so you're pretty much assured that predators, coyotes and and uh, con, um, vultures and so forth, are going to come in and walk away with those carcasses. Um, so there's not much to find. Also, they only search about a third of this very uh, small perimeter around the turbine towers. So essentially, the Fish and Wildlife Service is allowing and even participating in a widespread fraud as to the true number of birds and bats being killed every year by the wind turbines. knows that this is an issue because they've they've announced uh, that they're issuing bird kill permits. Can you explain that? Yeah, they're issuing what used to be a couple year, and now they're talking about a 30-year or 20-year eagle takings permit. And now takings is just this this clever little term they use to when they really mean kill or slaughter these birds, and they're talking about eagles, bald and golden eagles. Now, if you or I were to possess, have in our house a single 
eagle, uh, bald eagle feather, we could go to jail or be fined big time. But the, and that would be the case even if we found this dead eagle near a wind turbine it was cut in half by the turbine blade if we took one of the eagle feathers we could go to jail or pay a fine but the wind turbine operator who killed the bird would walk away scot-free so it's just an insane situation combined with the fact as you pointed out that some oil companies were prosecuted for having killed 28 ducks over the course of an entire year in the entire state of North Dakota, uh, ducks that had landed in waste pits near oil uh, oil wells. But when it comes to the wind turbine operators, they get a complete free pass, and they're assisted in the, uh, the slaughter and hiding of the slaughter by the, the very government officials who are supposed to prevent it. On top of that, you've got to remember that the Fish and Wildlife Service is trying to shut down all kinds of coal, oil and gas, mining and other operations, even ranching operations, uh, to protect the sage grouse, which are pretty numerous yep. in most parts of the western United States, as we all know. But when it comes to any species of birds and bats that are almost being wiped out in a lot of areas near turbines, if driven to extinction in those habitats, they don't want to raise a finger against the wind industry. They want to subsidize it and help them hide the slaughter. So why are environmental groups not up in arms about this? That's a good question. A few of them are starting to speak out, but the bulk of them are so in favor of what they call renewable energy that they don't want to speak out about it. They they really detest oil and gas and coal, and they see wind energy as a, a viable, important alternative to the fossil fuels they hate. In reality, it's the fossil fuels that are still generating 80% of the electricity that's a to wind turbines because the turbines only operate 15 to 20 percent of the time and much of the time that they operate is when we don't need the extra electricity they're generating and we're not when they are not operating and not generating electricity like on a really hot summer day or a bitterly cold winter uh, winter night that's when we need the electricity the most uh, it, it doesn't make sense from any kind of logical, scientific, environmental standpoint. It's all, it makes sense only from a hardcore ideological standpoint. Yeah, and the, but the Audubon Society has kind of come out on some of this, haven't they? Yes, they have. Because uh, they're really and, and it about it took them work. a while. Yeah, it took them a while uh, to... to and and what, are, what are they doing? To, are they doing anything to try to get... To, get this word out? Well, I, I'm not fully... Or is it the people like you and me? Yeah, it's mostly us. Um, <laughs> even the Audubon Society has not shared the outrage that they and other environmental groups constantly do over global warming that they attribute to fossil fuels or any little impact on the lands and resources from oil and gas drilling, coal mining, and so forth. And here you have uh, a very outrageous amount of environmental impact, not just from on the birds and bats from the turbine blades themselves, but when you look at the amount of land that is impacted uh, to build all these turbines, uh, you're talking about millions of acres to support these 40,000 or so wind turbines here in the United States. You have to have enormous amounts of steel, concrete, rare earth metals, copper, 
uh, fiberglass that actually comes from oil and gas and other materials uh, to build all those turbines and turbine towers. And then on top of that, you have to have, you duplicate every megawatt of electricity that you're supposedly generating from wind turbines because you then have to build a coal-fired or gas-fired power plant that sits idle part of the time but has to kick in as soon as any as the wind dies down. So you have doubled the infrastructure, the transmission lines, the uh, power plants themselves, because you've got the turbines on the one hand, and then you have to have the regular fossil fuel generator on the other hand. So my solution is just forget about the wind turbines. Just build the fossil fuel plant. You'll use far fewer resources, far less land, and have virtually no impact on birds and bats. Now, that's, I'm, I'm, that's one of the things when I first began to understand this story. Uh, it's one of the things that really outraged me is that the, the duplicity of uh, the wind turbines and, uh, you know, because they have to have that backup uh, and because of their intermittency. Now, we've got a minute or so left, Paul. Can you tell us, you know, you wrote a column on the production tax credit coming, the discussion in Congress this week. In about a minute, can, what can you tell us about that from your view? Well, I think they should just end this production tax credit because we're paying the uh, the wind turbine companies big time to build these turbines. We pay them for every gener- every megawatt that they generate, whether or not we need that electricity at the time. We're letting them kill all these birds and bats. We're letting them build turbines that have to be duplicated by uh, fossil fuel power plants. The uh, whole system is completely unsustainable. We just need to apply the same endangered species and migratory bird and bat laws to the wind turbine people that we apply to every other industry in the United States, not give them an exemption, require them to conduct uh, honest scientific bird and bat killing studies, and end the uh, any support for a system that is as fraudulent as what we're dealing with right now. Now, you live close to Washington, D.C. You're in Virginia. Um, 20, sec- 20 seconds. Are we going to see the wind production tax credit extended? Well, right now what it looks like is they'll extend it for a short period of time uh, so that they can come back and look at it again in uh, the new year when we have a, a different Congress, different Senate especially. Uh, but there are so many pressures on these guys to just cave in and keep extending this temporary uh, short-term credit that they enacted more than two decades ago, and it was for a startup industry that just needed a little bit of help to get going. Now it's been decades, and they still want it, and they know even Warren Buffett says we would not even be building any wind turbines if it weren't for these for these tax credits. Yeah, we're, we're over get time, Paul. I, I appreciate being with you being with me today. Thank you, Paul Breeson. Thanks for having me. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, 
taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government as well as those involved in legal cases have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our last segment for today of America's Voice for Energy. Today we've been talking about the production tax credit for wind energy. And we're specifically talking about this topic today because right now this is something that the lame duck session of Congress in Washington, D.C. is considering as part of a tax extender package. Our last guest, Paul Dreesen, gave the prediction that he believes it is probably going to be extended. Can come back and really give it a serious look. Uh, Our next guest is Mary Kay Barton, who's a grassroots activist uh, in New York State. Now, we've had Tom Stacey with us from Ohio. We've had Robert Bradley with us from Houston. We've had Paul Dreesen with us from Virginia. And now Mary Kay Barton from New York, upstate New York. Is that correct, Mary Kay? That's correct. So tell us, to start off with, you know, a little bit about yourself and why you got involved in this issue. Because unlike me, or unlike Paul Dreesen, uh, or, you know, um, any of the other guests, we kind of earn our living out of uh, energy policy advocacy, but you don't. So tell us where you where you come from on this. Well, I live in western New York, Wyoming County to be specific, which was targeted by the industrial wind industry. And we were originally slated to have over 2,000 industrial wind turbines carpeting the entire county. Uh, and... We moved here specifically because of the beauty of the area, built what we thought was our dream home here. My background is uh, I'm a certified uh, New York State certified health educator. So, uh, and, you know, I'm a Cornell certified master gardener. I've always gardened strictly organically. Uh, You know, I'm all about the environment, and I've been involved in local water quality organizations here over the past decade. Well, we had just built our place and found out they planned on surrounding us with these 450-foot-tall industrial towers. And I said, like hell they are. That was 10 years ago, and I've been involved ever since. (laughs) And tell us, what efforts have you been involved in and what success have you had? Well, it started at the, the, the people at the state and federal level are uh, complicit in allowing this, and it shouldn't be called a tax credit. It's a, a money, a taxpayer money giveaway to these already uber-rich corporations. The, the last project that was built here, 58 turbines by Invenergy, 
uh, in Orangeville, New York, which is about eight miles from me, is uh, was built only because of the last time they extended the production tax credit, which I call, instead of the PTC, I refer to it as pork the cronies, because that's what it is. It's a money giveaway to these big corporations, and they're the very people they're assaulting by putting these things only hundreds of feet from their homes are the ones that are being forced to pay for it. It, it, is, it is criminal negligence on the part of our legislators. To date, no study anywhere in the, has been done anywhere in the United States on the serious health effects of citing these things too close to people's homes. In Wisconsin, they were just the Duke Energy Project there was just dubbed a human health hazard because of people having to leave their homes because they can't sleep at night. And then who's going to buy these homes? They're serious. Yeah, so, so, so with your background as a health educator, can you expound for our listeners on some of the health issues with these wind turbines? Because we haven't addressed that at all in this session. And, and to me, this is the biggest crime of the whole thing, besides the fact that it's a giant scam. They don't p- provide reliable dispatchable base load power. They never can. The energy of wind is too diffuse to ever provide modern power, period. But regarding the health effect, a health effect, um, because to fit them in in the, the more populated areas of the Northeast where the wind resource is a one or two on the scale of to seven. We even had a first wind left Attica, New York, because they said there, there wasn't sufficient winds here. But they're building them because of the, the free taxpayer and ratepayer money they're getting. Um, I know people that have had to dump their homes at significant losses and move because they can't sleep at night. Obviously, if you can't sleep, it's going to lead to other health problems. The Orangeville citizens are now suing Invenergy for $40 million just to try to, you know, make up the the loss on their home so they can get out. You know, of course, uh, the owner of Invenergy, Michael Polsky, has bought Jamie Dimon's mansion in Chicago. He's living a high life, and he's paid more for his home than these people are getting out of the whole project. We get a few recycled taxpayer dollars. And have our properties, the entire county, devalued. People are suffering, can't sleep. It's insane. I I attended uh, many meetings in Albany with NYSERDA, the New York State uh, Energy Research and Development Authority here, which is the bureaucracy that collects our ratepayer money to fund these things. And when we finally forced them to have a meeting specific to wind power, Back in 2009, uh, a New York State Department of Health official, New York, uh, Dr. Jan Storm, admitted that they knew about the problems of the infrasound that is generated by these turbines, that it's a problem worldwide. And even though they had stimulus money um, that, you know, to look for grants that, no grant, you know, no studies had yet been done on uh, the health effects of these things, yet they keep allowing the sighting of these things literally only hundreds of feet from people's homes. Now, 
people that live in the cities don't understand what's going out here on out here in the country. That picture a four hundred and thirty foot to five hundred and seventy foot tall turbine with blades that are 164 feet long, that weigh 11 tons each, spinning at 200 miles an hour over your home. I mean, it's it's just unbelievable. To me, it's unconscionable that no elected official anywhere in the United States has yet called for appropriate health studies to be done while they continue to cite these things too close to people's homes. the former New York State PSC sound engineer testified at that same NYSERDA meeting that about what infrasound is. It, it's the sounds below 20 hertz, the sounds that uh, the human ear can't hear, but your body feels. And he said the effects of over time become worse. The longer you're exposed, the more your body is affected. We've had people that take videos of a glass of water sitting in their table with the the wind turbine you can see is spinning in the background outside, and you can see the water in the glass vibrating. Now, when you understand that the human body is 80% water or fluid, you can understand the effect that that is going to have on the human body. The inner ear is affected. It throws off people's balance. You have people ending up with vertigo, dizzy spells, heart palpitations, uh, more migraine headaches. You know, what effect is this having on the children that are still developing that live within the footprints of these things? There's 308 of them. I mean, luckily we were able to stop them from putting up the 2,000 that they wanted to sprawl all over here. Yeah, a while ago I asked you about your successes, so obviously that's a part of the success that you've had in your efforts there in New York State. They've installed 300 turbines instead of 2,000, is that correct? 308 so far, yes. But the problem is, is Governor Cuomo is totally on board with President Obama's green push. He uh, is... Um, a few years ago passed the Power New York Act, which, which contained within it um, Article 10, which removed home rule from our local municipalities. Make no mistake, uh, this whole thing is about taking away people's constitutional private property rights. Our municipalities now have no say, you know, they're trying to say that they do, but they don't. It's up to a five-person unelected board in Albany as to whether these projects will go through or not. You know, so they say... Go ahead. Go ahead. They, you know, they, they allow your community to appoint two people to the, to the board, but obviously five to two. I mean, these people... If you look at the board of NYSERDA, these people all have ties to the Wynn Corporation. I've had elected officials say to me on more than one occasion, we don't care if they work or not. It's all about the money. There's, it, it doesn't, in New York State, in 2012 is the last time I have the numbers for all 16 wind factories in New York State operated at a 23.5% capacity factor. 
That's now which person listening to this show would buy a heater for your home that only operated twenty three percent of the time, or 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 a car? Obviously, if your car only started twenty three percent of the time, you're going to have to have a second vehicle. That's the same thing that's going on here. We it, and we're down we're down to about two minutes, Mary Kay. I want you to comment if you can on the ad that I'm sure you've seen that Siemens, I believe it was, produced recently with the Blue Danube waltz music and the wind turbines, and it's designed to present it as a whole different view than what you're presenting. Oh yes, and I actually I wrote an article about that, which uh, is uh, is on Master Resource. Uh, on that very thing, it so infuriates me. These big corporations show the pictures of the sprawling wind factories out in the Great Plains, where they uh, were designed to be, where nobody lives. You know, so there's no houses in the picture. It all looks so idyllic, and that's not what that's not what is going on east of the Mississippi. We. We are much more heavily populated areas here, and the, the states they target are the states that are offering the gener- generous uh, RPSs and and all that garbage. Which stands for Renewable Portfolio Standards, Renewable. the RPS. Right. And and they're, they're citing them just hundreds of feet from people's homes and roadways, heavily traveled roadways. And for people that don't follow this, you know, the, the new GE 1.6100 they installed in Orangeville already had one blade break, and it's, there's been a rash of them across the country and worldwide. The parts of this thing, it's like a bomb blowing up when one of those blades flies off. You know, yeah. I mean, who wants Mary Kay? We're out of time, but give our listeners real quick, where can they find your article that you just mentioned and, and your other work? Uh, masterresource.org. Uh, and also, if they just Google Mary Kay Barton, Master Resource, or also our our local blog with our citizens groups across New York State is citizenpoweralliance.org. Great. And my, We're out of time, article. Mary Kay. Thanks for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you for Thank listening you. to America's Voice for Energy on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.